showing me this from Scripture, but it's not a correct interpretation. Now, you multiply that by the hundreds of years since then, and it's only gotten worse. People teaching all sorts of things and telling you it's right there in the Scriptures, and sometimes they'll even show you, and it seems to be there. And it just it causes you to have such consternation, such confusion, so many different things taught from Scripture that we say that, that are not accurate. How in the world does anyone have a hope and a confidence that they can take the Word of God and derive from it the way we need to make decisions and live our lives? The way he describes it in 1 Timothy chapter 1 is they go to these obscure genealogies and they, they mine from it these truths like, you shouldn't be married, he says that later on, or there's certain foods you can't eat, or there's certain behaviors that you've got to stop that have nothing to do with righteousness, and it makes everybody go up in arms and be confused. And he's, there's people teaching that straight from Scripture. And Paul comes along, and I want you to notice as we start in verse 8. Now we know, and he says, guys, you know this. I want you to know this, and I hope that as you come to Valley View, I hope that you learn this. There's ways that we understand Scripture, and there's ways that we can know that it means something for our lives, and we can submit to it. And you know it so well that you can also know when somebody doesn't use it right. Listen to what he says. Now, we know that the law is good if it's used lawfully. Now, isn't that weird? It's good if it's used lawfully, but, but the opposite is true. If somebody uses it wrong... The law, which is so good, can become bad. And that's where our title comes from. When people use Scripture unscripturally, just because it's in the Bible doesn't make it biblical. Isn't that weird? So let me give you some examples. Just because the Bible records something doesn't mean it's true. Just because the Bible records something doesn't mean it's true. Here's an example from John 9. Have you ever heard this? We know that God does not listen to sinners or hear a sinner's prayer. Maybe you've heard it. But if anyone is worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. We know that God doesn't hear the prayer of sinners. Have you ever heard that? I've heard this many times. And they say, well, John 9 says it, and it's true. John 9 says it. Does anybody know who says this? Anybody remember? It's the man who was born blind that Jesus gives his eyesight back, and he has no idea. He just says, we know this. We know this is conventional wisdom. We all know this is true, but it's not, y'all. Don't take this verse and say, this is the truth. It's not. The blind man said it, and he's representing conventional wisdom of his day, but it's not true. Be careful taking this and using it. Now, here's another one. Listen to Job 42, and it has implications because I remember listening to the guy, to this guy. He doesn't preach anymore, which doesn't surprise me anymore. But as he was preaching, he was quoting Job out of the book of Job. 
And I would go, ooh, uh, I don't believe I'd have done that. And here's why. Job chapter 42, God comes along and says, after the Lord had spoken these words to Job, Job find, God makes his appearance at the end of Job. The Lord said to, to Eliphaz the Temanite, my anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right as Job has. So I'm going to have Job make some sacrifices and pray for you to forgive you, because he says, for you have not spoken of me what is right. God says, the stuff you've said to Job is wrong. What happens if you quote from sections of Job that were spoken by the three friends? What does that mean? I just quoted the three friends. It's right there in Job, and God says at the end of it, everything you said is trash. We should go out and cut out all their stuff and get rid of it because it's not true. God says it's not right. Don't quote the friends and use that and say, and don't sign your name and quote, you know, put Job on there from, from what his friends say. That's terrible because God comes along and says everything they've said is wrong. So if you say it, you're wrong. Just because it's the Bible doesn't make it biblical, right? Second one, just because the Bible is quoted doesn't mean it's interpreted or applied correctly. I can quote verses verbatim. Listen, I've heard sermons, and some of you say this to me. That's a really good sermon because it quoted 3,565 verses. Old preaching used to do that. Just quote after quote after quote, and I can guarantee you half of them at least were out of context and may not say what you think they were saying, right? But they quoted the verses, so it must be biblical. Now, here's a conversation Jesus has with Satan. This is in Matthew chapter 4. The devil took him to the holy city and set him up on this pinnacle, the high point, and he said to him, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down because the psalm says, and it really does say this, Jesus, I mean, Satan quotes this perfectly from Psalms. He'll command his angels concerning you, and they will bear you up, and you won't strike your foot against a stone. But the context is all wrong, and Jesus corrects him and says, it also says this, you will not put your Lord, the Lord your God to the test. What you're asking me to do is to take that verse out of context and test God. Just because there's a verse, just because it's Bible, doesn't make it biblical. Isn't that crazy? Third one, just because the Bible teaches something doesn't make it always valid. I'm going to read a verse to you. It's so very timely. Jeremiah chapter 10, learn not the way of the nations. Nor be dismayed at the signs of the heavens, because the nations are, in dismay, are dismayed at them, for the customs of the people are vanity. A tree from the forest is cut down, or maybe picked up at Lowe's, and worked with an axe by the hands of the craftsmen. They decorate it with silver and gold, and they fasten it with a hammer and nails so that it can't move. Does anybody that sound familiar? They take a tree and they decorate it silver and gold, like decoration balls and stuff, silver stuff, and they nail it. Okay. And their idols are like scarecrows as a cucumber field, and they cannot speak. And they have to be carried, for they cannot walk. Do not be afraid of them, for they cannot do evil. Neither is it in them to do good. This, y'all, I've heard seriously and read even more. This is why Christmas trees are sinful. Now look at this one. This one just went up a few days ago. 
our children's minister put it up and then celebrated on Facebook, she's got her tree up. Now, what makes this even worse, now kids cover your eyes because if this is sinful, I don't want you knowing that your children's minister did it. Okay, I just, just block that from your memory. She had the staff of the church over her house for lunch just hours before doing this. So here she has the preacher and the youth minister and these people at church to have, uh, you know, have lunch with her, gets us out of the house and then puts up her idol in her living room. That's what she does. Jeremiah chapter 10 says you can't do that. Now listen, that's what some people say. I'm telling you, there is a verse that says that. And, and if, it could be true, if she is bowing down and worshiping this tree, she is in violation of Jeremiah 10. I'm pretty sure she's not, but listen, I've, listen, I've been watching Facebook, and I hear people say this, I need to put my tree up, I need peace. I need to, my life to have order, I need some sanity. I'm gonna put up my tree, and suddenly, sanity will come to my life. That's really close to being an idol, y'all. How many have your tree up right now? Raise your hand if you have your tree up right now. Y'all be careful about the idolatry stuff, right? But there's a verse for it. There's a verse about a tree. Take it out of the woods. You put silver and gold on you. Yeah, but th that's not this. You can't take, there are other verses too, <coughs> especially in the Old Testament, about how they are to be concerned and conscious of their sin. And so they make these sacrifices. They're meticulous about the sacrifices. But guys, listen, if you do that today, if you do what they had to do, you would be wrong whereas they were right because of where you are. We have a Savior who came and offered the sacrifices. We do not have to offer those sacrifices. In fact, we can't without compromising the nature of Jesus. We just recognize the sacrifice in the table. You've got to know, y'all, when you're reading a verse, just because it's Bible doesn't make it biblical. You've got to know when it is. You've got to know where it is and where you live. All that stuff has to be applied. That's what makes it very difficult sometimes. So Paul comes along and he says, you've got to use it lawfully. You've got to use Scripture scripturally. Now, I'm going to give you what I would call a hermeneutic from this passage. Hermeneutic. Fancy word that just means how I interpret Scripture. I want you to join me at verse 10. He's, and he gives this list. We're going to go back and catch this law stuff in a minute. We are not under the law. None of us here are who are Christians. If you're a Christian, you're not under the Ten Commandments. You do not have to keep the Ten Commandments if you are a Christian. If you're not, those Ten Commandments can be used to teach you how to become a Christian, but they are not your command. All right, we're going to get to that in a minute. But here's what he says at the end. And whatever else is contrary, if you see that in verse 10, to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God which, with which I have been entrusted. Here is our hermeneutic. You ready? First, there's God. Go ahead and fast forward. I'm going, yeah. It all starts with the blessed God. He says that's where it all starts because our goal is nothing less than this. I don't want to just, I don't just want to abide by Scripture. I want to be like the God we serve. And so we are made in God's image. You know that, right? Genesis chapter 1, in the image of God, he created us. And he gave us this job to do, and that is I want you to image God 
world. I want you to, I want you to rule over creation just like I would. I want you to be my imagers on earth. That is our job. And yet, because we sinned, we fell short of the image and glory of God. And yet, God doesn't give up hope on this. Every time he calls people, he says, I want you to be holy, for I am holy. Right? And then there's this verse in Ephesians 4. With regard to your old life, it's being corrupted by its evil desires. Put on the new mind, renewed by the image of God, and you take on and put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. You have a call on your life, Christians, to be like the God we serve, and he calls him the blessed God. He is our aspiration. He's everything we want to be. Now, we're not going to be God. We are striving to be like God, but you know what? That's a big call, isn't it? There's a lot to that, a lot of abstractness to it, like an abstract painting. How can we capture all the essence of God? And so he says, I want you to back up from that because we're going in back reverse order. In accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God, God revealed his glory in the gospel. When God shows off, when God decides, I'm going to reveal who I am to where it's visible, he calls it glory. And there's glory all over the earth, we're told. The earth is going to be full of his glory one day, but it already has some in it. When you travel along and you see the changing of the tree colors, according to Daniel 2, he's the one who, who pulls the trigger and says, I'm going to transition the seasons. And when you see that, God's showing off. I'm in charge of this. I'm showing off. You see the mountains and you see the oceans. You see the glory of God. But there's nothing there's not much greater than the glory he showed in the gospel, sending his son to show the true image of the invisible God. And so in the gospel, he sends Jesus. Jesus comes and he lives and he dies and he's raised again. And that's good news for us. That is God's glory being shown and so what you have is, we have a desire to be like God because that's what he called us to. That's what we're created for. And God shows us who he is in the gospel, and so we try to obey the gospel. And when a person comes to the gospel, they are empowered by God to do this. And that leads to the third thing. There's this instruction, this sound doctrine that is delivered by the apostles, and it is in accord with the gospel. This is the most complicated thing, and I'll illustrate it here in a minute. This, our lifestyle, the responses we give, the way we worship is not gospel. Our worship is not gospel. Our behavior response to God is not gospel. It is something, be, something below that, but the gospel is what gives a reason to our behavior. And so he comes along and he says, God gives us sound doctrine that reveals what is in accord, what God expects of us, out of that gospel. When you've obeyed the gospel of God, you all of a sudden have a response to make, and that's been told to us through the sound doctrine. Here's how that works in 1 Corinthians. That's the only way I know how to, to illustrate this. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul says, we preach Jesus and him crucified. You see that underlined in verse 23. What we preach is the gospel. 
Paul wants the gospel preached. And we talk about what God has done in Christ. We talk about the good news of how he's restored humanity to that original creation of God, that image of God that's in us. But listen, here's the thing. That's not what a lot of our preaching is. Have you noticed that? My preaching is not gospel preaching. My preaching is more like, here's how you need to live in light of that gospel. So it becomes a step removed, but that's where Paul talks about 1 Corinthians, we preach Jesus and him crucified, but the rest of the Corinthians is about quit being divided and get along with each other. Now how is that the gospel? It is sound instruction, a body of teaching that, that is in light of the gospel. And if you believe the gospel and you obey the gospel, the Holy Spirit comes into your life. He equips you to be able to live in accordance with that gospel and you get along with each other. And by the way, you don't let that guy live with his father's wife. That doesn't happen. That's not gospel, but it's the teaching that is in accordance with the gospel. And by the way, you don't sue each other either. When you guys can't figure out how to solve this dilemma between the two of you, you're showing that you need to go to worldly judges. You don't do that. You solve this in-house. You don't consult prostitutes, even in the name of religion, 1 Corinthians 6. You're faithful to your wife, 1 Corinthians 7. That's not gospel, but that's teaching in accordance with the gospel that he has declared to us through the apostles. All this goes on. How do you handle meat, meat offered to idols? What a weird thing. We don't have this problem. They did. It has something to do with the gospel as it flows out. How we observe the Lord's Supper matters. How men and women relate to each other in the sight of God matters. It matters very much in accordance with the gospel. He goes on through the whole letter to talk about this. This is some of the most confusing stuff. But just because something is Bible doesn't make it biblical. But when you know who God is, when you know what the gospel is, and you take seriously the sound instruction of the New Testament where apostles take that gospel and apply it to real life, you can learn what God wants from you. You can know better. I'll give you one example and we'll quit. The other day I was mowing our yard with a push mower down by the there's a long ditch right by the road I have envisioned a hundred times this happening but it's never happened before but I've been on the mower the riding mower and I've thought about it what happens when your mower throws up a rock and it hits a vehicle anybody ever thought of this before I've thought of it a lot of times but I never had to really think through because when it what it actually happened, but it actually happened. Push mower goes right by the, the ditch, and there's a lot of rock in that ditch. It throws up a rock, and a truck passing by shatters his passenger side window, right, into a billion pieces. Looks like a spider web, and there was a woman sitting there who was out of her mind scared, thinking she just got shot, and that rock stuck in that rock. Thank goodness it stuck in that window, he kind of came to a screeching halt, and he turned into the driveway, and he says, you just threw a rock at my truck. I said, well, I didn't really throw a rock. I mowed a rock into your window. There's a difference in my mind. I got to thinking, though, what is your obligation to this? I didn't even think about it legally. I, I talked to Dustin Jones yesterday, and I have no idea what he told me. He explained it, but I have no idea what he meant. 
I was like, I have no idea what you just said. Well, blah, 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 blah. Okay, so I don't know legal. And, and at that moment, I didn't really care because, I got, because I've already thought this through. I kept thinking of the ox. Does anybody know what the ox means? I kept thinking of the Old Testament ox. And I've thought about the ox a lot of times while I'm riding the mower, thinking what would happen if I threw a rock. I always stop when cars go by. It's just this time I didn't think I would need to. It was a push mower. So it, he, he pulls in, he said, what do you do? And all through my mind, I go, the ox. The Old Testament ox was, if I had an ox that turned out to be dangerous and it harmed someone around me, a neighbor who happened to be around me, it is up to me to pay restitution for what my ox does. Uh, and I've never thought much about uh, teaching about the ox on a Sunday morning uh, sermon. Why would anybody want to go back to the Old Testament and talk about the ox and what it does to somebody else? But what I realized was I was the ox, or maybe the mower. The mower was the ox, and, and I had done something that hurt a neighbor passing by. So the most logical thing from the Old Testament law, read through the gospel, thinking about what God would do, what Jesus would do, and what the scriptures would say, would be, you go to a glass place, change it, and let me cover that. He agreed to it. He went down to Union Glass. It was, he, the, he was a relative anyway, and, and I followed up on it and covered it, and that was no bad. And I probably should have looked for some mental health help for his wife, who was in the passenger side, too. I don't know anything about that. It seemed like the right thing, and it seemed right to him. And I looked at that, and I thought, that I believe... Is what God would want me to do. I think that's what the gospel demonstrates, and I think that's what sound teaching in line with that gospel would do, and certainly what the law does. Now, the law still has a function for us, but here's the thing. We, we as New Testament believers, will end up looking like the picture the law paints, but we're not going to get there because the law says so. The law is powerless to get us there. It shows us where it wants us to go, but it's powerless to get us there. The gospel, however, the gospel not only shows us where to go, but it empowers us to get there. When you obey the gospel of God, he comes into your life and empowers you to actually bring it about. You keep the law. You as Christians keep the Ten Commandments, but it's not because they're the Ten Commandments. You keep the Ten Commandments because God is living in you, and that's where he's going to take you. And so you have the things like the fruit of the Spirit. You've got nine of them listed there, and he could name dozens of others. When the Holy Spirit comes into your life, that's what he's going to produce. And there's no law, he says, against any of those, but there's also no law that can make you do a one of them. However, when you are Spirit-led as a person who knows the blessed God we serve, and you've obeyed the gospel of Jesus Christ, and you have the Holy Spirit living in you, bringing the Word of God to life in you, you can live it out. You now are a person who honors the law, but not because it's the law. You honor the law because it's God, and God lives in you through His Spirit. That's how you live out the Scripture. Use Scripture lawfully. Use Scripture scripturally, and it will make you more like God. And you'll look more like Christ, and you'll be led by the Spirit through the sound instruction that lines up with that gospel.
And that is what we strive to be as Christian people. So this week, when you go down the hill, you've got a job to do. Keep in your mind the blessed God you serve. Keep in your mind the gospel that Jesus lived out. Keep in your mind the sound instruction that the Holy Spirit gives us through the apostles and live by them. And let's be a people who live out this sound doctrine and we change the world and we become more and more like the God we serve. That's his idea. That's the plan And that's what he's empowered us to be. So let's use scripture scripturally by applying it to our lives and becoming like God. If there's anyone who's never responded to that gospel, I'll tell you, it's very interesting how it just lines up with that gospel. The reason you need to be baptized is because the main event of our lives is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And when you want to come and make him Lord of your life, you need your own death, burial, and resurrection. And you line up in doctrine exactly what the gospel was. And this morning, if you've never done that, the opportunity is here. And I encourage you to come forward and stand as we sing to encourage you.